0: Hello and welcome to Opinionated Science, the podcast from Technology Networks. On Opinionated Science, TN's team of scientists turned journalists rummage around in the toy box of Science show our listeners the studies we've been playing with the most over the last two weeks. I'm Rory McKenzie, Senior Science Writer at Technology Networks, and today I'm joined by my colleague and fellow Senior Science Writer, Karen Stewart. How are you, Karen?
1: I'm very well, thank you. How are you, Rory?
0: Yes, I'm well too. Looking forward to studying our studies today. Now, uh, Karen, I thought you might have one for us first to start us off.
1: Absolutely. So um, let's build a bit of background first. So I take you back to a time when my parents were at school um, without giving you know, an idea of their exact age, Well, let's say the 1950s and 60s, Um, so things like autoimmune problems, so allergies, asthma, they were were pretty uncommon. So my mum herself is an asthmatic. Um, Not only was she the only one in her class that had asthma, but the only one in her school. So fast forward to when I was at school, asthma, really, really common you go on a a residential trip and the poor old teacher's got an entire bag full of spare inhalers for this child and that child. They've got a list as long as your arm of dietary requirements because these children can't have dairy, this one is allergic to eggs, no one can have peanuts because otherwise Peter will blow up like a puffer fish. You (laughs) you get what I mean. Um, Even speaking to some of my friends now who are teachers, it's it's not uncommon for at least one of the children in their class to require access to an EpiPen because they have severe allergies. So my point being is that this has become, um, there's this huge increase in the frequency of these allergies um, and autoimmune conditions um, that's happened over the recent decades. So to give you a few stats, according to the European Academy of Allergy and Clinical immunology. Allergy is the most common chronic disease in Europe, with over 20% of the sufferers living with severe and debilitating forms of the condition in fear of severe asthma attack or anaphylactic shock, both of which can result in death. Mm. Um, and allergies are continuing to rise, so in the UK 40% of children have been diagnosed with at least one allergy, and in the US 1 in 13 children have at least one food allergy. So these are some quite staggering figures. Yeah, wow. Yeah, 40%. and yeah. It's, really, really high. I mean like some of my friends when we were at school had allergies but nothing like that. It's a phenomenal number. Um, But The big question is people are asking, and understandably they're asking, is why is this happening? So there's something that is slightly misleadingly called the hygiene hypothesis in medicine. So this was originally developed in 1999 and it's been refined over the year. So this states that in early childhood exposure to p- particular microorganisms help to protect against these allergies by contributing to, n- to the immune system development. Um, and if you get a lack of exposure, it's thought that to lead to defects in this development of immune tolerance. So you then develop allergies and asthma, uh, things like that, to, um you know, everyday things that aren't actually a threat. So in these uh, in the early versions of this hypothesis they talked about microbes in general, but this has actually been refined, so we're talking about specific um, species of um, you know, bacteria viruses, that kind of thing. So it's not a case of we must expose our children to absolutely everything. it's specific things that are you are know, helping to develop this immune tolerance. But here is the point where there's been quite a lot of disagreement within the scientific community and it's further muddied by a quite a pervasive public view um, that's not necessarily always built on the hard evidence that we've become too hygienic in the Western world. So children and toddlers aren't being exposed to these microbes that they need in their early life. Thus, it's leading to these defects in immune tolerance, which manifests as these rocketing allergy levels. Right. So you might say, sounds, sounds quite plausible. Uh-huh. uh this is where the study that I want to discuss comes in. So this was published in the Journal of Allergy and Clinical Immunology earlier this month by Emeritus Professor of Medical Microbiology Graham Rook from UCL and Professor Sally Bloomfield from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. So they've sought to reconcile this apparent conflict between the need for being clean and hygienic to prevent us being exposed from pathogenic organisms. You know, no one wants a dose of food poisoning, for example, or measles or whatever, Um, so you want to get rid of these things that make us ill, but at the same time you need this exposure to the microbial species that are important for setting up a healthy immune system that responds appropriately rather than these uh, inappropriate allergic responses. So as I already said, the hygiene hypothesis is widely accepted um, and they mentioned in the paper that the most uh, important exposures of these beneficial organisms early in life are likely to come from mothers, other family members and our natural environment, and here I really stress natural environment. <clears throat> so, one of the first points they make is that actually the microbes that are present in the modern home in reality bear very little resemblance to those that are in our natural environment with which we evolved and whose input we actually need. So, for I mentioned for transfer from family members, the findings also suggest that this is from direct social contact rather than people coming to the house, shedding it into the home environment and being picked up. So it's this direct contact. Um, So actually the microbes you find in a modern home um, to a significant degree aren't the ones that we need for this um, development of immunity. There's also some good solid evidence now that the microbes in the natural environment are those that are particularly important for our health. So in this case, the domestic cleaning and hygiene are going to have very little bearing on our exposure to the natural environment. I think even most people who pride themselves on having a very clean home are unlikely to go and scrub every service in the garden, are they? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah you get wrong i going. So that's the first point they're making. Secondly, there's also been this suggestion that by reducing exposure to pathogenic bacteria, that we're adding to the problem of allergy development um, by losing this protection. Uh, however, the childhood infections that typically people are trying to protect their children from by cleaning the home, weren't present during most of human evolution. So it's unlikely we've, devol- we've evolved this dependence on something that wasn't actually around when this, this system of immune tolerance had evolved. Mm-hmm. Um, and several studies have actually demonstrated that developing these infections when your child don't really protect against allergy anyway. Uh, they do, however, um, infections give us some Sort of non specific cross protection to other infections because they work by boosting our immune system. But most children are going to receive a whole plethora of vaccines against pathogens during their childhood, which will give you this the same non specific protection without risking um, killing your child by contracting measles or whatever. So, actually, um, th- this need for exposure to this, these pathogenic species has been removed by vaccination. So the last major point um, was that when they they do they do actually see associations between cleaning the home and health issues like allergies. However, in most cases, it's been found it's not caused by the removal of these beneficial microbes. It's actually exposure of the lungs to the cleaning products themselves. Oh really? Yeah. So these cleaning products are causing damage that predisposes development of allergies and actually some of the components of some of the cleaning products are themselves allergens. So the problem exists and there is an association but it's not the one that people think it necessarily is and actually we see this effect in adults too so people who are cleaning staff if they're exposed regularly to some of these cleaning products that you see quite a high rate of asthma development which is effectively yeah, you know, it's the same the same process happening. So the upshot is that home cleaning hygiene is important to protect us and our children from the pathogenic and harmful microbes. Um, and but cleaning should be targeted towards you know, hands and surfaces where these um, pathogenic um, there's most likely to be transmission of these pathogenic infections. But it's important to limit exposure of the children to the cleaning products themselves and the adults as well, um, and make sure this is you know targeted cleaning. And targeted cleaning is going to help with reducing this kind of exposure. So the authors conclude that to help the development of a healthy immune system, exposure of children to mothers, family members in the natural environment, plus vaccination can give us all the microbial inputs we need. Uh, And this doesn't need to clash with intelligent, targeted cleaning and hygiene.
0: Right. So, you know, if you're setting your kids uh, chores to do, you can't let them do the cleaning anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And the excuse for all teenagers.
1: Yeah.
0: There you go. It's uh, yeah a good example, as you said, of uh, a scientific hypothesis that is going the right way, but based on totally the wrong evidence. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's absolutely fascinating. No, I, I didn't expect that at all. And I'm, I'm very aware that these uh, skyrocketing allergy rates have, have been popularised for so long. I mean, did they did they point to any particular cleaning products, or is it just in general the 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 higher use of products more widely?
1: Um, I think it's specific. Composed. I don't have it noted down which one, but um, yeah, I think there's certain components in certain cleaning products. Um, so I mentioned some of them are allergens as well. If I can't tell you off the top of my head. It's I think there's probably more detail in the the paper as well because they cite quite a lot of other studies, um, including the epidemiological studies that have looked at this incidence of um, cleaning product versus allergy. Yeah, uh, I can. Pro- we can provide a, a link to those in the notes. I'm sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We'll pop that in the show notes. But uh, thanks for sharing, Karen. That's uh, yeah, an, an oh, unexpected well. finding, but uh, and yeah. a really important. So it's
1: good to be clean. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no excuse there. Now, uh, regular listeners of this podcast are probably getting a bit sick of me going on about psychedelics, but it's <coughs> a really exciting area um, of research um, purely because. Uh, it's, it's a field where we're now seeing essentially what were kidney breaks and stabilizers taken off a, a research field that's been limited for so long. So, um, as anyone who listened to my episode from, I think, a couple of episodes back will know uh, psychedelics have been regulated very heavily in the Western world for the last um, 50 years since the 1971 Vienna Convention. But over the last four or five years. We've now started to see a wider recognition that some of these compounds, these mind altering substances uh, could have potential therapeutic benefits, primarily for the brain. So compounds like uh, MDMA and psilocybin have been recognised by the Food and Drug Administration in the United States for their potential therapeutic power. And both have been granted breakthrough uh, therapy designation by the FDA in recognition of this. So. Today, I'm going to be talking a bit more about psilocybin. Now, this is pretty much your, your classic psychedelic. Um, it's, you know, find it in random woodlands and in various mushrooms, it makes you see weird stuff, and it's, yeah, incredibly illegal. But um, one thing that I, I find so interesting about psilocybin is I kind of always imagined, I, I guess, before I, I knew much about psychedelics, you know, magic mushrooms. I was like, there is a particular Magic mushroom, and if you eat it, you will you will see these things. Well, actually, psilocybin is derived from over two hundred different species of mushroom or fungi. And uh, this made me this made me wonder how many fungi do you think there are, Karen? Oh, how many wow. would you guess? Because believe oh. me, there's there's a couple of different answers here, so don't worry about getting it spot on.
1: <laughs> the leading question: um Oh, probably thousands. It depends whether how granular you're getting. I mean, like, I've got an encyclopedia of fungi somewhere on my bookshelf, I'm sure. But it, it's, it's a fairly fat volume, so I'm going to go thousands.
0: Yeah, they reckon there's about 14,000 species of mushroom. But of course, mushroom are just the, the fruiting bodies of the fungi that stick up above the ground. So uh, if you expand that to wider fungi, which is a whole, of course, kingdom, you get to about two between two and five million species of fungi so can't help but think there's there's a few more magic mushrooms yet to be discovered but yeah,
1: um lots of candidates there
0: yeah yeah absolutely so there's you know all all these different um mushrooms producing this compound so it, it's really no surprise that um, psilocybin has become this this topic of um, interest given that it's shown a uh, really quite remarkable and rapid acting antidepressant effect. And I specify rapid acting because, of course, classical antidepressants like uh, serotonin selective reuptake inhibitors, or SSRIs, uh, act quite slowly. And anyone who's been enrolled into a, a psychedelic study uh, will know that one of the most interesting things is when these compounds are effective uh is a very, very quick effect. And the, the the reason that this has gotten a lot of interest from researchers is because it's, it's hard to marry that conclusion with the, the finding also that the effects of psychedelics like psilocybin on depression can last for several months. And now, if there is an effect on um, serotonin, as SSRIs work, and researchers think that this is at least partly the mechanism of action, given that psilocybin acts naturally as a serotonin agonist, meaning that it boosts the level of this uh, mind and, and sort of mood boosting brain chemical. Uh, but if it is based on serotonin, then we would expect the effect to wear off quite quickly. But instead, we see it, it lasting for this extended period of time. So researchers have been putting some effort into trying to track down what exactly the mechanism is of this both quick acting and long lasting antidepressant effect that we see from psilocybin. And that brings us to the current study, which is published in Neuron. And it's by a team from Yale University headed by uh, Professor Alex Kwan. And what the team there have tried to do is look and see whether or not psilocybin can induce changes to the structure of the brain, in addition to these chemical changes that I already mentioned. So to do this, they've used a very powerful imaging technique called two-photon microscopy, to look at the microstructure of uh, neurons within the frontal cortex of mice. And it's always good to emphasize that we're looking in mice here. So um, I'll get to it in the, the the end of my my talk here, but it's always important to, to keep in mind that it's, it's mice involved. Uh, But what they found when they dosed mice, just a single dose uh, with psilocybin, was that after two days and then after seven days, there was a long lasting increase in the dendritic density uh, found in these mice's prefrontal cortex. Now, the dendritic density refers to the density of uh, these connections called dendrites, which are kind of signal transducers for the brain and they they aggregate different signals from synapses uh, and they're recognized as an important part of the brain's connectome. Now, this change in the synaptic density, interestingly, roughly represented about a 10% increase in the rate of spine formation. Now, the spines can go in the brain and transiently change quite often, but the team noted, and this is why I think it's such a powerful study, that the changes lasted not only over the seven-day period, but they went and revisited the same areas of the brain using the same imaging technique in the same mice 34 days later and found that roughly a third of that increase was preserved. So there, these changes are, are long-lasting. And you know, I think it's important to consider here that a 10% increase, and therefore, you know, a third of a 10% increase is not a big increase. It's not um, the the wholesale restructuring of a a brain region, but it is a change that's you know something that's consistently seen. And they I also identified that the growth was localized to the medial frontal cortex, and the reason that they focused on this area is because the frontal cortex is an area where, in depression, uh, patients are often noted as seeing neuronal loss. So it's I, I think it's a, a an interesting finding, and I think that you know the, the significance of that ten percent increase, you know, we we need to tease it out more. Uh, I found one interesting aspect of it was actually came up in a webinar that I um, took on last week, which I also put in the show notes for our listeners. Now uh, this was on a another psychedelic topic, um, and it was headed up by Dolan, uh, who is a professor, assistant professor at uh, Johns Hopkins University. But what she noted was that there's a bit of divide in the community between those researchers who think that, as I mentioned, there's this wholesale restructuring of the brain, lots of um, plasticity is is reopened by psychedelics, and, and those like Dolan who believe that this is unlikely because if there was this plasticity, this remodelling of the brain, it would point to these drugs perhaps potentially being more uh, addictive because you see drugs like cocaine, which are highly addictive, as producing this kind of plastic change. So um, she nonetheless said that Quan's findings of a smaller change could... Um, could be, you know, very plausible and not in, in contrast with with her theories, but I highly recommend you give her webinar a listen if you are listening to this podcast, because it's a, a really interesting talk from Professor Dolan. Uh, the final thing they showed, which I also thought was interesting, was that the effects on uh, spine density in these dendrites was not linked, it seems, was not at least mainly linked to effects on serotonin signaling and to prove this they dose the mice with a a compound called ketenserin a serotonin um, antagonist and you would expect with dosing of ketenserin for there to be a large reduction in the ability of psilocybin to signal through uh, the serotonin receptor and they used a weird behavioral test as a measure of this mice when they are given psilocybin you know cannot report and. You know get out a pen and draw lots of funky shapes sure. or give you a, a talk on all the um, i'd weird... love to see that <laughs> i would i would if we could somehow work out whatever is going on in these mice brains i think it would be very enjoyable but unfortunately we can't what researchers have noted though is that their heads twitch in a very peculiar fashion when they're given psilocybin and this has been shown in the past to be tied to the activity of these serotonin receptors so mice given kitten serin don't show this head twitching activity but they do still show this change in uh, neurogenesis in this, this spine formation. And the reason that's interesting is because some researchers are wanting to tease out whether or not psychedelics action on the brain can and on depression can be separated out from the hallucinatory effects because, of course, even if uh, a single dose of psilocybin can give you therapeutic effects, if it results in you having an extended trip, uh, if it is a hallucinatory dose, then it means that it has to be taken in more careful circumstances. You can't have it at home or you know, can't drive, obviously, <laughs> even for uh, quite an extended period of time after having it. So researchers are trying to separate these out. And if you could see uh, the effects on um, neurogenesis and, and potentially, therefore, depression is being separate from the hallucinatory effects, then there is hope that uh, maybe a modified version of psilocybin could produce uh, antidepressant effects without any focus on hallucinations so I think it is interesting although they did, they did note that ketanserin isn't entirely blocking these signalling so it could just be a, a reduced signalling effect but uh, you can read about that in the paper and in my write-up which is going to be attached in the show notes but I think it's an interesting finding of course as I said again at the start it's in mice always something to consider <laughs> and you know it, it, it's just the uh, the sad reality that we can't stick um to photon imaging microscopes in humans' heads quite yet.
1: <laughs> S- Slight issue for ethics there, probably. I think it's <laughs> really fascinating stuff, really fascinating, and also offers um, so many potential doors for people who are suffering with you know, severe depression, and you know, it's great work. Um, I was just wondering, are they planning to follow them for any longer? So I think you mentioned, was it 34 days they follow them for?
0: Yeah, they follow them for 34 days. I think their focus is going to be on... Rather than time points, they're going to focus on trying to track down um, more specific effects on different types of neuron, which I think is an interesting finding. But I suppose the the rationale is that thirty four days for a mouse lifespan is you know pretty pretty significant yeah. in, in comparison to effects on humans. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think it is important to tease this out because you know it's a a really big question. Is you know there has been limited clinical trials involving psilocybin partly because it's so heavily regulated it's very hard to do mm-hmm. but um, a recent one from earlier this year showed that it could match the effects of an SSRI in humans um, so it's, it's you might end up with a scenario where these clinical trials are providing this you know real impetus for it without us actually having been able to tease out the exact mechanistic effects beforehand
1: yeah, yeah. interesting I'm just wondering from the time point of view if even if they're not able to tease out the the psychedelic effects from the therapeutic effects I I don't know how long the the psychedelic effects from a a dose would last but if you can see beneficial therapeutic effects for you know weeks or months afterwards whether it, they can they might consider it's um worthwhile you know a short term you, you yeah. can't drive and you're know, being monitored for a short term if you get i don't know six months of benefits or whatever
0: well karen thank Great you enough. very much for joining me today oh uh, thank you interesting hearing about allergy and about psychedelic drugs and we will be back in a couple of weeks time with a new episode of opinionated science but until then please do like share and subscribe to our podcast and let us know what you think don't keep your opinions to yourself bye for now bye